Part eight of Two Essays on Military History, Strategy, and Tactics, Mountain Warfare, 1909, and Naval Strategy, 1917, by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part eight, British Navy, Chapter five, Dealing with the Submarines. My name is Captain Kidd, Captain Kidd, my name is Captain Kidd, Captain Kidd, my name is Captain Kidd, and wickedly I did, God's law I did forbid, as I sailed. Old Nautical Ballad Having seen the British fleet and the fleets allied with it operating in the North Sea, the oceans, and the Mediterranean, we may suitably turn to some special features of the duties and work of the Navy in the war. The submarine came as a sign and a portent of new developments in the means and the practice of warfare at sea. Regarded once as the weapon of the weaker power, it was adopted into the naval armory of the strongest. When, in 1901, under Lord Fisher's administration as first sea lord, a beginning was made in submarine construction by the ordering of five Holland boats, many people were taken aback confessedly the part to be played by the submarine lay at that time in the realm of speculation but the british navy could not afford to ignore it every advance must be watched and studied as it developed the development has been rapid and there are british submarines of astonishing powers which have no equals in the world they have made their mark in many a theatre of war the french had led the way the germans followed in nineteen o six there is indeed the best reason to believe that grand admiral von tirpitz chief of the navy department looked with no kindly eye upon submarine boats he was a believer in battleships and the creator of the high sea fleet with its battle squadrons and cruiser divisions concessions were made to the admiralty staff and a few submarines were put in hand but it was not until the beginning of the war that Tirpitz became inspired with the fervor of the convert. Even now, the relative position of the submarine in the category of warships is obscure. Admiral Sir Percy Scott thought that the knell of the battleship had been rung by its growing power. Yet ships of the battleship class, carrying incredible armaments, possessing speed beyond the dreams of antebellum naval constructors, and infinitely superior for a dozen reasons to anything the Germans had thought of, have recently been completed, and will probably play a decisive part in any future naval engagement. But if the submarine has not dethroned the battleship, she has, in the hands of the enemy, done other remarkable things. She has struck a mortal blow at what many excellent people have hitherto regarded as the settled and accepted code of international law. She has appeared as a pirate commerce destroyer. Without warning and without pity, she has sunk fishing vessels, tramp steamers, stately liners, and hospital ships the code of honor is not observed by her the german submarine officer has orders to run no risks although in the old wars naval officers who had no means of submerging either to attack or to escape gladly ran every risk incidental to the service in which they were engaged when the lusitania was sunk it was explained that if the commander of the submarine had permitted the passengers to take to the boats before firing his torpedo this would have meant the certain destruction of his own vessel there was no evidence that such would have been the case but the risk which implied a danger merely incidental to naval service 
was held to justify the sinking of the great liner with twelve hundred souls on board the wildest imagination could not have conceived that any human being could take such a distorted view of right and wrong and of the plain duty of the seaman the submarine has accomplished other remarkable things in the war she has converted benevolent neutrals into resolute enemies she has brought the united states into the war in support of the allies she has transformed the mercantile marines opposed to her into actual fighting forces a few merchant ships were armed before the war began but now because of ruthless submarine attack the british mercantile marine is for practical purposes embodied with the navy in the sense that it is under naval control is provided with means of defense and acts directly under naval orders moreover one half or more of its shipping has been taken over by the naval service the same is true of the merchant ships of the allies the german submarine has had a further effect she has created a whole array of means directed to her destruction countless inventors have been set at work and extraordinarily ingenious methods have been employed with the purpose of putting an end to submarine activities by sinking every boat as she appeared in the early days of the submarine it was believed that she might be sunk by using spar torpedoes fixed in swift boats which would bear down upon the submarine as she submerged and explode the charge against her hull but it soon occurred to seamen that if a swift vessel destroyer or other could run down a submarine she might more easily sink her by the impact of her sharp stem or a special keel this method has been practiced in the war and by this means a number of enemy submarines have been dispatched to davy jones locker there was an early case in which a certain destroyer going at high speed actually impaled a german submarine on her stem and carried her onward so injured that she sank another early case was that of the german submarine rammed and sent to the bottom off beachy head on march twenty eighth nineteen fifteen by the thordes commanded by that plucky skipper captain bell who set an example to many another plan was to use suitable vessels in pairs each pair dragging a cable connecting them from which hung on short lines small mines to be electrically exploded when a submerged obstruction probably a periscope or conning tower put a tension upon the connecting cable the disadvantage of this system was that the entrapping vessel could not travel swiftly without bringing the cable near to the surface and the chance of a submarine fouling the cable was remote yet it may be conjectured that the features of this system may have furnished the germ of procedures now in use capture or sinking by the use of nets was also an early idea probably suggested by the nets used by big ships at anchor for protection against torpedoes and admiral sir arthur wilson devised a large steel net for the purpose possibly this method too has developed into the nets employed in dealing with enemy submarines at the present time but submarines were continually increasing in strength of structure speed and handiness so that new systems were necessary and have developed with the requirements what the actual methods employed by the navy are cannot be explained when mr frederick palmer the american writer visited the grand fleet he asked how the thing was done and officers said 
sometimes by ramming, sometimes by gunfire, sometimes by explosives, and in many other ways which we do not tell. M. Joseph Reinach also visited the fleet and said in the Figaro that the submarine was pursued by net, gun, explosive bomb, and other means. Squadron Commander Bigsworth, on August 26, 1915, destroyed a submarine off Ost End by dropping bombs upon her from his aeroplane, and there have been several other episodes of the same kind. When the first American transports were attacked in the Atlantic, bombs fitted with a short time fuse were employed, which burst at a predetermined depth below the surface of the sea. The Royal Naval Air Service plays a large part in the anti-submarine campaign. Its seaplanes are always scouting over our waters and sight enemy submarines from afar. Flying high, they can and do discover submarines navigating below the surface, and by wireless or other signals bring destroyers or other craft to the scene where by special means submarines are destroyed. Probably gunfire is the chief means by which submarines are sent to the bottom. A German submarine may attain complete submergence from the cruising trim within about three minutes, but the time may be longer if she has a gun mounted, wireless rigged, and other top hamper. From the awash position in which her speed is reduced, she may submerge in about two minutes. A swift destroyer, knowing the position of such a submarine, may advance toward her, covering a nautical mile within two minutes, so that she has an excellent chance of coming within range and putting in shots with effect. Gunnery is carried to a high pitch of proficiency in the Navy, and one destroyer may be mentioned which knocked out the periscope of a German submarine at a range of over 2,000 yards with her first round. There is nothing an enemy submarine likes less than to see destroyers tearing down towards her at high speed as she is getting in her gun, withdrawing her periscope, lowering her masts, often a disguise, and filling her tanks. Moreover, complete submergence may not be a sure protection for her if she is watched, or she may be destroyed by an explosive bomb. German submarines have also learned to fear armed merchantmen, which have not seldom used their guns with effect, sometimes compelling their assailants to submerge, and so evading their attack, and sometimes by obtaining direct hits. The Dunrobin, in September 1916, carried on a lively action for some minutes, hitting her assailant in the vicinity of her conning tower with a TNT shell thereby causing an internal explosion from which dense smoke arose, followed by three common shell, each of them making a direct hit, after which the enemy suddenly plunged at a sharp angle, evidently going to the bottom. In March 1917, the Bellardo was attacked by gunfire from a submarine, whereby her master, chief officer, and a seaman were killed, while her gunners put such shot into the assailant that she was silenced and manifestly disabled. Further, it is not permissible to go on describing how submarines are accounted for. The catalogue of methods is a long one. There could certainly be no single and decisive weapon for the destruction of this new engine of warfare. There is no remedy for the effects of gunfire, and if submarines discover targets possible to be attacked, they will certainly attack them. 
Some surprise was expressed that the British Admiralty did not at once suppress the submarine menace. When the submarine campaign began in February 1915, it resulted in the sinking of a number of British merchantmen. But having risen to its height, it declined, with fluctuations, until it was described as being well in hand. The methods employed had been successful. Then, after several months, the submarines began their depredations again, carrying them into the Atlantic and the Mediterranean with great violence. They also penetrated the channel, though they never checked the great stream of transport for the armies between English and French ports, which the Navy was guarding with complete success. The reason for this recrudescence of submarine piracy was the intense energy which the Germans devoted to the production of standardized and powerful classes of submarines, whose parts were produced in many districts of the German Empire. The new boats were practically submarine cruisers, capable of high surface speed, which enabled them to overhaul slow merchantmen, and they were armed with powerful guns. The early enemy submarine carried a 1.4-inch gun, but a 2.9-inch 12-pounder was provided. There is now reason to believe that the caliber has risen to 4.1 inches, and in the case of some of the more powerful boats, to 5.1 inches, these larger guns being shorter and lighter than the same guns mounted in cruisers. But obviously, submarines of these classes, carrying on their work over wider areas and in distant places, will not be so easy to destroy as the smaller boats of the early submarine campaign, and this may account for the difficulty in providing a complete protection from the attack. Submarine sections have been sent overland and assembled at Trieste for the Adriatic and Mediterranean, and at Varna for use in the Black Sea, and also doubtless at the Golden Horn or in the Gulf of Ismid. There is much uncertainty about the future of the submarine. She exercises no command at sea, and she makes many fruitless attacks upon armed merchantmen. But she is dangerous, nevertheless. The British Navy has devoted exhaustless energy in applying every possible agency for dealing with hostile submarines, and its great success encourages the hope and belief that the scourge will yet be exterminated. Destroyers, motor launches, patrolling ships of many classes, seaplanes, observation balloons, and other craft are at work every day, and many of them every night. But whatever element of uncertainty there may be as to the complete success of these agencies, there is none in the conclusion that the submarine will never bring England, still less her allies, to the verge of famine or anywhere near it. Scarcity of food is not due so much to the submarine as to the great demand on the world's supplies, and the enormous volume of shipping absorbed by the naval and military requirements of England and her allies. The Navy, which has done such wonderful work in the war, is not and will not be ineffective against the submarine. Chapter 6. The Navy and the Mine they sink, they slink, they seek the boat, grisly horns stuck through their skin. Ready to sink all things that float, these villain boxes shaped of tin. The fisher sees the death therein, but reaches down with his long fling, and grasps the chain that holds them in, and draws the fangs they hoped would sting. Anonymous 
the british navy fights for the great ideals of the people acting upon the lines of old and loyal traditions but while doing so it has encountered the desperate devices of the enemy who has used the latest achievements of scientific and mechanical invention in such a manner as to overthrow many preconceived methods and accepted conventions of naval warfare we have already spoken of the submarine now we shall see what the mine is and how it is dealt with by the navy and the services the navy controls it has been said with much truth that the essence of war is violence and that moderation in war is futility it is also true as we see in the cruel operations of zeppelins and bomb-dropping aeroplanes and not less in the attacks of submarines as directed by the germans and their allies that the non-military populations suffer the horrors of war in much greater degree than was the case in the wars even of recent times but the Germans, at the very beginning of the war, outraged neutral sentiment by employing ostensible merchant and passenger vessels flying neutral flags, and without giving warning to the neutrals in the deadly work of scattering mines indiscriminately in the open sea on the main lines of trade. They acted in direct contravention of the rules of war as previously accepted these disguised mining vessels had traversed the trade routes as if pursuing peaceful purposes thus enjoying the immunities which had always been accorded to innocent neutral vessels and yet they had wantonly endangered the lives of all who traversed the sea whether neutral or enemy the admiralty were soon able to declare publicly that this mine laying under a neutral flag as well as reconnaissance conducted by trawlers and even by hospital ships and neutral vessels had become the ordinary methods of german naval warfare the later history of the war shows how far the germans were prepared to go in casting off any restraint in their efforts to do injury to their enemies they compelled the british admiralty to adopt countermeasures for years past the germans had devoted unremitting attention to the study and practice of mining and the production of very powerful types of mines in that respect they were undoubtedly ready the state of war between england and germany began at eleven p m on august fourth nineteen fourteen and on the morning of the next day german mines were being laid on the east coast of england the Königin Louise, a former Hamburg-America liner of 2,163 tons, was caught in the act off the Suffolk coast and was sunk by the light cruiser Amphion and the third torpedo flotilla. On the next day, the Amphion herself, the first British warship destroyed in the war, fell a victim to the mines she had laid this disguised mine-layer had initiated a practice which has since been many times followed in the war of throwing mines overboard in the track of pursuing vessels it was resorted to by the retreating germans in the battle of the dogger bank here it may be remarked that the germans have always claimed the right to subject every consideration to their necessity to win though at the hague conference in nineteen o seven baron marshal von bieberstein the german delegate said that conscience good sense and the duty imposed by the principles of humanity would constitute the most effective guarantee against abuse and he proclaimed je le dis à haute voix 
that german naval officers would always fulfil in the strictest fashion the duties which emanate from the unwritten law of humanity and civilization any technical description of german minds would be out of place here but it may be said that generally they approximate to a spherical shape and are provided with projecting horns almost in the shape of drumsticks concussion with which is calculated to break a small vial within whose contents cause the detonation of the enormous charge of tnt explosive each mine is provided with a sinker which drops to the bottom and is attached to the mine by a cable or sounding line paid out by special mechanism to any desired length whereby the mine may be kept at the intended depth below the surface there are other types of mines, and in particular one of cylindrical form, containing a prodigious quantity of explosive and capable of the widest destruction. This has probably been used only in special situations. The ordinary mines can be laid with great rapidity by a specially fitted mine layer, provided with rotary gear, bringing mine after mine along a special track to the dropping position. The drifting mines, which the Germans at the very beginning of the war set afloat in the main trade route from America to Liverpool via the north of Ireland, can be laid with still greater rapidity. When mine-laying in British waters by surface boats was made extremely risky or almost impossible, the Germans resorted to the employment of submarine mine-layers, one of which was exhibited in the Thames. Vessels of this class, so far as they are known, probably carry a maximum of twelve big mines in six chutes or airlocks, the lower mine in each chute being released by means of a lever, after which the other drops into its place, ready to be let go in the same way. The boat exhibited in London and elsewhere was of a rough rudimentary character, indifferently built, and her speed was probably not more than six or eight knots undoubtedly many of the submarine mine layers are of better type they are constantly at work especially on the east coast of england and some losses have resulted but the effect of their operations is nearly always overcome by the means adopted by the navy the first measure set on foot by the admiralty is to organize a system of search for suspicious craft and to declare the north sea a war area within which it was dangerous for any vessel to navigate except through channels indicated by the naval authorities the germans replied with their now famous and futile blockade order of february nineteen fifteen new regulations were issued from time to time regulating navigation through the british minefields and the result has been in association with the patrols to exercise a very close supervision over the navigation in home waters as to distant mining operations of the enemy the first lord of the admiralty stated on march eighth nineteen seventeen that they had been carried very far and the p and o liner mongolia sunk off bombay on june twenty third nineteen seventeen was not the only vessel mined in the arabian sea from time to time it has been announced that mails for and from the east and australia have been lost at sea 
It is an inspiring thing to turn from the picture of mines and the scattering of them by the enemy to another picture, that of the gallant and successful manner in which the navy and the mine trawlers and other vessels embodied in its service and employed in the ceaseless patrols have grappled with the deadly menace of the mine. Ever patrolling the British coast, ever facing death, often speeding to the help of vessels mined, torpedoed, or otherwise in distress, the glorious men who man these craft have inscribed their names in letters of gold on the roll of British honor and fame at sea. It was a marvelous thing, this embodiment of the vast mine-sweeping and patrolling service in the work of the Navy in the war. From all the coasts fishermen have come, with their trawlers converted from the craft of winnowing fish at sea, to the sterner work of bringing up and destroying the strange harvest of deadly mines which endanger all life at sea. Many a trawler has been sunk by contact with her fatal captures. Others have been sunk by hostile fire and bombing by enemy aeroplanes, but never have the brave seamen quailed in the service of the country and the Allies, and in every port men are to be met whose craft have been sunk under them and who have hastened to sea again. Hundreds of ships, drawn from the mercantile marine and the fisheries, steam yachts, motor boats, armed launches, and vessels of other classes, are employed in such dangerous work. They share the trials of war, wind, and weather with the regular naval patrols. Sir Edward Carson, when first Lord of the Admiralty, directed attention to the magnificent work of the mine trawlers of these patrols. The force employed at the beginning of the war numbered about 150 small vessels, but increased to 3,000 or more. The whole nation should understand what minesweepers were doing. The thousands of men engaged in this operation are the men who are feeding the whole population of this country from morning till night, battling with the elements as well as the enemy, facing dangers under the sea. A minesweeper carries his life in his hands at every moment, and he does it willingly. Later again, he expressed his thanks and the thanks of the nation for the splendid work they had accomplished. Of all the seamen who had so deservedly earned the gratitude of the country, none had had more arduous and dangerous duties to perform than the gallant fellows in the patrols. They have worked in reliefs day and night at sea, though sometimes driven to port by the fury of the elements, and they brave every kind of weather. As Admiral Bacon, commanding the Dover Patrol, has said, with reference to the security with which thousands of merchantmen had passed through the waters in his patrol, no figures could emphasize more thoroughly the sacrifice made by the personnel of the patrols and the relative immunity ensured to the commerce of their country. They have trawled for mines, not only in British, but in distant waters. Their magnificent work under fire, and attacked by bomb-dropping aeroplanes at the Dardanelles, will never be forgotten. An American correspondent, Mr. Gordon Brace, who sailed in a mine trawler to learn its work, concluded an article in the New York Tribune in these words, I looked at those men who go out day after day, who wear their life belts continually, who take their tea on the decks while they peer over the rims of their cups for the death that lurks in those somber waters. I thought how fine was their devotion to their duty, how great a part they are playing in the war, 
out there alone where their deeds are attended with no sounding of trumpets where they give to their work the same quality of bravery as is required of the man in the trenches and as i glanced at the inscription over the cabin which read england expects every man to do his duty i knew that england would not be disappointed the practical methods by which the navy and its brave mine trawlers conduct their services are of great interest but description cannot go too far the enemy is certainly well acquainted with all british methods previous to the war but mine sweeping systems do not stand still but develop with the progress of armaments generally mine trawling is developed from the system of trawling for fish which before the war had reached a high degree of technical efficiency and in the application of that system to their work in the war the men have attained great proficiency and become extraordinarily successful the trawl net varies in size with the dimensions of the vessel using it an average size would be about one hundred feet in length with a spread of from eighty to ninety feet the principal features in fishing trawlers are fore and after frameworks with fair leaders a towing block a powerful steam winch and towing warps a trawler would pay out hundreds of fathoms of heavy wire warp the handling of which called for great skill and dexterity it was not a very difficult thing to adapt this method of trawling to the sweeping for mines the fishing trawler goes unaided but in mine sweeping the trawlers work in pairs and the towing warp is replaced by the sweeping wire two trawlers steaming abreast at a certain interval drag a weighted steel hawser which upon striking the mooring of a mine brings the deadly catch to the surface where it is exploded by gunfire from a destroyer or by rifle fire from an armed trawler or motorboat the minesweepers have encountered perils and hardships which have never been recorded and fishing trawlers pursuing their peaceful occupations have often incurred the same risks next after the destruction of the enemy's fighting vessels comes the destruction of his death-dealing mines and the mined trawlers confronted with an unparalleled task attended with extreme peril have rendered magnificent service to england and her allies and of part eight.